0: By popular demand, today's episode is a dive into a market that you're probably not familiar with yet because we haven't spoken about it a lot in previous episodes. But we're going to start deep diving this year a little bit more into a topic that seems mysterious for a lot of people, which is private lending and private lending markets, how they work what they do, what they focus on. It's like a whole other world of lending and investing that you're really gonna to wanna to dig into. Now, we're not gonna get away from our core and we're gonna make sure to give you good information that's unbiased. And uh, in an effort to do that, we're gonna bring on different people. And today is not any different. So today, we brought on uh, Lisa Stewart, and Taylor Little from Neighborhood Holdings, the CEO and Vice President of Capital Markets. So we got the big names up here. These guys are a massive private fund who really know what they're looking at and really know what they're talking about. Some of the answers in this episode are just Phenomenal, and I think you're gonna get a deep dive into how some of these private lenders operate. Now, just like any other business, they operate their own way, so one private lender might operate differently from another, but I think you're gonna get a ton of value from this episode, so stay tuned as always. Make sure to reach out to us at Thrive Mortgage Co. If you have any questions, I'm Alex, I got my partners, Dean and Derek, and you know, this is one of the sides of our business that we do spend some energy focusing on. So uh, that being said, We got to get back to giving away some more of those thrive mugs and today we have an excellent review that we got to go back on and this is from january of 2021 uh wizard one two three four five six seven eight (laughs) nine great name by the way he says great group of guys and great content i don't know who this is but he said these guys know their stuff when it comes to real estate and mortgages and i'm glad to say i work with them and always appreciate the content that they are constantly putting out to help others well wizard Whoever you are, we appreciate you just as much for leaving the review. Thank you. Let us know who you are so we can send you one of those amazing Thrive mugs along with coffee cups coming real soon. Guys, as I mentioned before, Thrive Mortgage Co. is here to help you with your lending strategies, so make sure to reach out to the guys. Follow us on Instagram. Give us a share or give us a review. It's all we're asking for. Enjoy the episode today with Neighborhood Holdings. Let us know what you think. what's up guys you are listening to the ybr remo show where we talk all things vancouver real estate and mortgages take boring topics and make them interesting make sure to stay tuned to listen to everything you need to know how to put cash back in your pocket create wealth in real estate and simplify the complicated hey listen it's um it's a beautiful night outside Uh, apparently it was snowing earlier today right so uh thankfully everybody works from home right now and uh even more thankfully, we were able to connect and get you guys all out on the uh, the podcast here. So um, we're going to welcome you guys both to the show, and I'd like to introduce you guys one by one. Actually, I ask you guys to introduce yourself uh, if you don't mind. Um, why don't we start with uh, Why do we start with Lisa? Lisa from Neighborhood Holdings. Tell me a little bit about who the heck you are and uh, and what you do.
1: Sure. So my name's Lisa Stewart. I'm the senior vice president capital markets at Neighborhood Holdings. So. My role, I I manage capital, which comes with the title, which means bringing in debt and equity capital and then helping to deploy it in the form of residential mortgages.
0: Ooh, that sounds very fancy. Um, For someone who doesn't understand the terminology, let's break it down one more step. Capital, what are you talking about there?
1: Capital is money. So we bring in money from investors, um, institutions, individuals, Um, investment advisors. We also bring in money from banks. So we have a credit facility with a syndicate or group of five banks who will lend to us. And with that money, we then lend it to people who are looking to buy homes across Canada.
0: Love it. That's awesome. That helps me out a lot. Appreciate that very much. Uh, I need a little extra juice from my end. I got to fully under, understand and comprehend it. Taylor, thanks so much for joining us today. Of course, uh, we get the big wig as well. Um, and we're super excited to have you join us today. My friend, tell us a little bit about uh, about you. Who, who the heck's Taylor?
2: So I'm the CEO of Neighborhood and I'm glad you call me a big wig because uh, I think I have one of the least important jobs in the company. I really just try to keep the team motivated and engaged and keep everything flowing. So my job is kind of everything and nothing. Uh, we've got such a smart team and, and it's just a pleasure to work with everybody, especially Lisa here. She's a, she's a tough intro to follow.
1: Thanks.
3: <laughs> that is a very important role, my friend. Very important. So I think
0: one of the biggest reasons that we reached out to you guys at Neighbourhood aside from our, our connections and knowing you guys are a fantastic firm um, was the call out from our listeners to learn a little bit more about private lending and just understand what happens behind the scenes. Uh, so we're really thankful to have you guys both come on today. And you know, I know our conversation today is going to encompass encompass a little bit about the, where the market conditions are, but I think we want to definitely focus in on you know things like what is private lending, understanding the inner workings of a mick uh and explain what that is we'll stop using uh too many different terms in case somebody doesn't know um and then just different types of regulations and considerations from there so you know just kicking off to build some framework around who neighborhood is maybe uh taylor could you give us a little bit of a backstory as to um you know when and how uh, neighborhood uh started and and where you guys are lending today and maybe the size of the company
2: you got it so neighborhood really just started off as A single family office's yield investment strategy, which is a a fancy way of saying there was a a family that had a bunch of money and they were looking for places to put it. And one place that they liked to put it was in private mortgages. And really that activity in, in this form started back in about 2012, although the family has experience in the mortgage industry dating back to the 60s and 70s. And what we found is there was actually a really big appetite for the product that we were offering. And also our ability to continue to fund mortgages was dwindling because we were doing a lot of it. So what we did is spun out the mortgage lending activity from the family office into what's called neighborhood and invited some friends and family to participate alongside us in this lending activity that we loved so much. So that started officially in 2015. So Neighborhood was born in 2015. We're very proud that we hit our five year anniversary a few months ago, it was pretty cool, we celebrate it. And since 2015, we've grown to about $250 million uh, in assets, which is really just all mortgages. We've got about 700 mortgages in our portfolio. We've funded over a thousand mortgages in our portfolio and funded just around $750 million uh, in those five years. We're hoping this year to fund a billion or cross that billion-dollar threshold. So 2021 20, could be a pretty exciting year for us.
3: That's massive. Congratulations. Congratulations. That's huge. And, and the five-year mark, you guys must have seen some uh, some pretty dramatic changes over the years, I would imagine.
2: Yeah, I think the biggest ones, to my memory, Lisa joined us in 2018, and it's been no shortage of fun for her, especially with COVID, uh, just to cover, cover that. Interesting thing that happened last year and is still going on, but even before that, we've seen a bunch of different housing markets, and particularly because we lend across the country, you guys would remember uh, back in sort of 2015, there was a lot of concern about Vancouver real estate really accelerating in value, and of course that led to the introduction of a bunch of regulation, the foreign buyer head tax, vacancy tax, etc., and then what we also saw was that kind of migrate over to Toronto so once Vancouver introduced its taxes we started to see the Toronto real estate market really take off Uh, we got a little bit nervous about Toronto just because we thought what is the government going to do to regulate there are they going to do something further than what BC did what's that going to be for the market so those were two sort of challenging times for us just to think through what what this intervention would do and then When we saw the Toronto opportunity, or at least saw the risk in Toronto increase a little bit, we were looking for other markets and that's actually what led us to start lending in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And since then, we've also seen the Montreal market really take off. So at the time it it was viewed as a, a difficult market to lend in, different legal system, different language, different just practice generally in the broker community. But what we saw was a lot of opportunity to lend in a market that made a lot of sense to us. Montreal's a huge city, it's a great city, lots of good jobs, and yet you didn't have a bunch of non-Quebec lenders in that space. So we've seen some changes there. Um, granted, the other big change and, and probably affecting your guys' business more than ours was just the, the, um, the new OSFI rules for conventional mortgages as well so seeing that borrower stress test come into play in 2018 that was another big one so we're always it's never boring uh, there's always stuff to think about I think what makes our business a bit more comfortable is we're lenders so we don't have to worry too much about our house is going to go up in value 5 or 10 percent or 15 we're really thinking more like are they going to drop by 25 and if if they are do we want to adjust our lending practice so we have to make sort of broader bets, which is why you know, going to the investment point, it's, a, it's an interesting space to invest in because it's a bit more stable than what you might find if you bought, say, 20 apartment buildings and you really hope they go up. But if they go down, uh, that could really sting.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny you bring up the B20 stress test because when that came into play, you know, from the, the mortgage broker space, a lot of mortgage brokers just focused and still focus on conventional lending. And when that happened, uh, you know, the ton of mortgage brokers were seeing their typical A-files were not fitting with the banks or credit unions anymore. And that forced mortgage brokers to either slow down because they couldn't handle or facilitate the business uh, or they had to learn the alternative space. Right. Um, And that's where we previously, you know, opened up with the funding department and, and we were able to support and help a lot of mortgage brokers across Canada. So yeah, it's funny you bring that up, and then now it's you know it's gotten a little bit uh, more of the norm. I think private lending is becoming more. Um, a lot of people are more open to it, especially you know the B side. It's it's very very common in our business day to day.
1: Yeah, it's interesting what- with, with that. The size of market for alternative lending has grown, and it's such a small piece of the overall landscape. So it's about. I mean, the regulator would estimate that there's about 25 billion in um, alternative or private mortgages outstanding. So a really small sliver, but that still gives us, you know, a pretty big market to, to work with.
0: So just generally speaking, let's break things back a little bit here, just so everybody knows what we're talking about here. Um, making sure people understand kind of the basics of it. So from a, a private lending perspective, we talked about B20, we talked about OSFI. I think a lot of people listening might not know exactly what the heck we're talking about and their eyes are just glazed over. So let's, let's break it down in a simple, clear uh, way taylor you talked about it so why don't we pass it to you why don't you share with us like right away what was the impact uh uh, well i mean not long term you shared the impact but more importantly what is b20 from your understanding at least from a borrower's perspective and then what changed
2: so b20 is just really a a a rule for banks on how they can lend to borrowers in a way that will at a very basic level, at a way that really the regulator will accept the risk level. Um, So they they talk a lot about risk-weighted capital and what you can lend against on your own balance sheet versus insuring. That's where it gets complex and I don't understand it perfectly well, but the idea is there are rules out there to make sure banks are not making loans that they shouldn't.
0: Overland, too high of a risk, I guess
2: exactly so in 2018 or i guess really in 2017 the banking regulator said look prices of real estate are really climbing in canada rates are relatively low we're worried that people are taking on more than they can chew uh, because if this market goes down we don't want to see a bunch of people who borrow too much to buy real estate that's potentially underwater in terms of you know the value of the house is is worth less than your mortgage so the change was to make you qualify as a borrower at a rate that was higher than what the banks were offering. And that was designed just to make sure that if interest rates climbed, uh, one, your mortgage would likely be more expensive uh, depending on what type of product you were in. So you might have a fixed rate mortgage, you'd be fine for a while, but then when you renew, you'd have to renew at a much higher rate. So the banks are worried about that. But also when rates rise, there is a risk that prices could fall. So they just wanted to make sure people could manage that. And so what we saw at the time was there was definitely a lot more interest in our space because fewer people could get a bank mortgage. Suddenly the mortgage that you know you, know you can afford at two and a half percent, you have to show that you can afford, and I forget the spread, but you'd have to show you can afford it something like two percent higher than that.
0: Yeah, the, the stress, this actual stress test is what you're referring to, I believe right now. And. Believe it or not, uh, Taylor, and I don't know when the last time you checked uh, on this portion, knowing that you guys dabbled a little bit more in the private space, but today the spread is in most cases three percent or more. It's it's that dramatic right now. But you, you make a thank sorry to cut you off there, but it was a really good explanation and a really clear understanding. And I think the point that you made there about the risk of you know, for example, potential um, uh, the cost of borrowing going up at renewal, and so from your business, you, you saw the overflow of people now not qualifying anymore. And which leads us to, I guess, our next question, which is really around the types of borrowers that private lenders are looking for and particularly yourself. So 2018 occurs, OSFI comes in, does neighborhood adapt their guidelines based on that? Do you change the type of borrower you're looking for or, or who are you seeing these days?
1: So there's a lot of people who we would say are left behind by the banks, just given how rigid the regulatory environment is. A common example of people we would lend to is one business for self or self employed people or contract workers who might work, work in the gig economy that would be a big portion because banks require that you have verifiable income. That means your T4 slip, your tax slip needs to state how much you earn and that's what they use to underwrite your mortgage. We don't require that, we rely on stated income. So um, if someone has irregular income or they've just started their own business, we can rely on the income that they they state to underwrite the mortgage. Secondly, um, people going through some sort of transition in their life, whether it's a divorce, they now need to hold two properties instead of one for a short period of time. Um, Someone who's temporarily off work, maybe they're on disability from their job, have lower income than they they would have previously. Um, Private sale transaction. So if someone is purchasing a home that wasn't listed on MLS, that would be another example. So there's numerous reasons why someone can't go to a bank, and we help those people who are just temporarily unable to access prime financing, lend to them for, say, a year or two or three, and um, wait for them to be able to return to that prime space.
3: Yeah, and I think I think there's a lot of kind of misconception around private lending, right? Like a lot of people, you know, they hear bad things, they see what's on the news, but I think most people don't really understand... Um, You know, it typically always is a Band-Aid solution, right? Like it's usually a temporary solution that's getting someone through something that otherwise they couldn't, right? Whether it be, sometimes people have tax arrears, CRA, right? Like your typical banks are not going to help you pay that off. So somebody might be stuck and someone like yourselves could step in, offer financing for maybe it's even three to six months once the tax bill is cleared, you can get financing through a conventional lender. So, um, you know, just understanding that there's typically always a reason for private lending and there's usually, it's usually a make sense solution. Um, You know, obviously there are some bad situations out there and people that charge too much, which is why we really have enjoyed working with you guys. I've found your costs have been very, very fair um, for what you guys do. That's been a huge part of our relationship.
1: Yeah. And I think when people think of private lending and they, they hear the, the rates, they have some sort of sticker shock because they would compare it to a five-year fixed rate at a bank, but the actual apples to apples comp would be to a one-year open rate at a bank, and those rates are considerably higher than a five-year fixed because you're paying for that flexibility, and that flexibility is really the, the, the key reason that people would come to a, an alternative lender like Neighborhood.
0: I'm really glad that you brought that up, that one year term consideration, because generally speaking, as you noted, um, and I can see Taylor nodding his head as well as that uh, most private institutions, uh, including yourselves, uh, or private lenders, I should say, are generally speaking, not looking to keep you as a client long term, they're looking to hey, let's get you some money. Let's get you back up on your feet or put you in a position to sell or whatever it is. And then let's get you uh, out the door to, uh, you know, graduate up or, you know, pay back the money or whatnot, right? And so that comparison of the one-year term or the six-month open or whatnot is actually a fair comparison, which is fantastic. So what would you say, you know, to borrowers, uh, one of the probably the most common questions, just generally speaking about private lending is about the fees associated with that. You know, what, what, why, with this private institution, if we're doing that one year or six month open uh, comparison, are there certain fees associated? Why should a borrower consider that? And what, what should they be looking out there for normally?
2: You're talking just about what what types of fees are involved in yeah, deals with a lender like us, or
0: yeah, generally speaking, you know, if someone's getting a mortgage with a, let's just say neighborhood, there's associated uh, a fee, a cost to borrow the money in addition to the interest rate, which we understand is the case. But just from a borrower's perspective, as a as a lender, why is there a fee uh, cost or associated from the lender side?
2: So for us, at least, it depends. We don't always charge a fee. Uh, borrower, we typically offer borrowers an option to what's called buy down our rate. So we might have a rate and a borrower says, look, I'm, I'm more concerned about cash flow uh, than paying an upfront fee. So let's try to lower my monthly payment as much as possible. I'll give you a fee upfront. And what we do is just deduct that from our rate. So our lowest rate, are we allowed to talk about rates? Should we leave Absolutely. them out? Sure. Talk about rates. Uh, so our, our lowest rate is a 595 mortgage. And what someone could do is deduct 1% from that, for example, and that would be a lender fee or a fee to us. And then for the rest of your mortgage or for the term of your mortgage, you're paying 495. That, that's sort of the concept behind the fee. So that's one. Different lenders charge different fees. Some say, hey, we always charge 2% on every deal, no matter what. Uh, that's in addition to our rate. What we do is we say, here's the open rate, here's the buy down rate you can choose. So it's we're, we're pretty flexible from that end. And then other fees that you can expect, of course, there's a broker fee involved and that's, that's a fee that is negotiated between the borrower and their broker. And so it's something that we're not really involved in but it's part of the deal closing process. There's gonna be some legal fees involved Your typical legal fee on this is about $1,500, depending on who you use, what province you're in. And that's about it um, from our end. We try to be a very simple, straightforward lender. We can charge fees if, just like a bank, if somebody misses a payment, needs to change their payment dates, there's stuff like that that we charge. But again, they're all kind of disclosed, put up front, and we try to keep it as simple as possible.
3: Perfect. And when you compare that to conventional lending through a bank or credit union, the costs are higher because you guys are taking on greater risk, right? Like you guys aren't necessarily looking at the T4s and the pay stubs, or maybe if credit's not quite where it needs to be, you guys are bypassing that, right? And that's why you're seeing a premium on an interest rate and the fee that's included. Um, I think that's important to touch on. And another huge part of that is, you know, we're talking about 4.95% private financing rates. That's pretty phenomenal. Um, I mean, of course, the bank rates are at one and a half percent right now. But, you know, if you rewind two years ago, most private lenders were typically offering financing around the 8% range, right? So it's actually quite reasonable if you're in a pickle and and you need a band-aid solution. It's, you know, it's not something that's going to make or break the bank typically.
1: Yeah, a way that we often explain the the rate variance to, you know, that, that 1% that you just say that the 5-year fixed is half of the rate would be attributed to the flexibility, so the ability to pay out after a couple months if the if the borrower chooses to do so, and the other half would be credit risk. So, as you mentioned, we're not um, we don't need as much documentation as a bank requires to underwrite the loan, which yes does increase risk. Um, in, in some regards, but for us, we make up for that with the rate. And
2: Absolutely. one other thing to think about, too, is just the fact that we are typically interest-only. And so from just a cash flow perspective, uh, the, the borrower might, there, there's an equilibrium out there between our rates, let's say you're paying us 7%, what does that mean on an interest-only basis as compared to an amortizing bank loan that might be at 4 or 5%? cash out of your pocket, probably is going to be pretty similar. And from our perspective, if you're in a one-year deal, you're not paying down much principal on your mortgage anyway. So people pay for that flexibility, like Lisa's mentioning.
0: Mm. Yeah, that that, that makes a lot of sense here, guys. So hey, where I would want to go into this is, you know, I understand from a buyer's perspective, what to look out for. But a lot of people that uh, we talk to on a day-to-day basis these days are looking at how do they invest in a mic and what happens internally and, and how you guys price out the investor returns and so forth. Like where does that come from? So, I mean, I don't know who uh, if that's a Lisa question or a Taylor question at this point right now. But let's just say I you know I was introduced to Neighborhood uh, if that's something that you take on and I was curious about either a how do I even get started investing with you? Why don't we start there?
1: Sure. So neighborhood is um, a mortgage fund. All mortgage funds need to be um, distributed through what's called an exempt market dealer. So you would understand which exempt market dealer offers that funds products. For us, we have a captive uh, exempt market dealer, neighborhood holdings capital management. So we manage that ourselves, but for many other funds, it would be managed externally.
0: Okay. And so let's continue down that track uh, as someone decides, yes, I want to move forward with neighborhood. I like their name and I like listening to Lisa and Taylor and what they have to say. They sound like smart folks. What types of, um, I guess, is there any minimum requirements typically for someone getting into this space as it pertains to how much they're going to invest? Uh, Why don't we start there?
1: Sure. So I think that that really varies by fund. For us, we have two separate funds, two separate investment vehicles that invest in the same pool of mortgages, and one of them has a higher investment minimum than the other. There's, of course, some flexibility there. We don't have a true bright line test, but um, our, our first fund, Neighbourhood Holdings Limited Partnership, we tend to say that the minimum there is about 250000 And Neighbourhood Holdings Income Trust, which is a newer fund for us and was set up to allow investors to have access to um, registered fund investments that has a lower minimum. And we typically say it's about 10,000.
3: So speaking of registered funds, this is a good one, actually, a lot of people have RSPs that they've built up for years, and they're sitting in the bank earning a very low uh, return, obviously, you know, risk based decisions, but um, somebody could essentially take their RSPs and invest into a mortgage fund such as neighborhood, uh, and those funds would then be lent out in the form of a mortgage or mortgages, spread across properties, uh, and you would see a return from that, right?
1: Yeah, so different funds manage it differently. So for us, investors um, provide us with their capital and they're investing in the pool of mortgages. So they're not investing in a specific mortgage themselves. Some funds do that specific lending, but for us, it is what's called a blind pool.
0: Okay, so let's dig deeper into that a little bit more then. So, I mean, I don't know if you guys are willing to share numbers and, and uh, typical returns for someone getting into this space, because I think, again, anyone listening to this is probably wondering, okay, well, why would I invest into this uh, supposed risky investment? What, what can we anticipate as a borrower and over what timeline should we expect a certain level of return? Do you have any examples?
1: Yeah, so our investors, we, we say that we target between 75 to 8.5% on an annualized basis. Neighborhood and other, we'll call them mixed, just generally, mortgage investment corps. Uh, they are yield products, so we distribute income monthly, and that's really what our investors are looking for. They want that stable cash flow, either just to see that their investment is uh, performing, um, or get that cash flow themselves. We have some investors who are retired; they would use that cash flow for living, or um, you know, if they want to just. Uh, redeploy the capital, or many of our investors use that capital to put it back into neighborhood.
0: Would you suggest that, like someone getting into the space again, because this is this is foreign territory? There's so many people in the investing space, and we get so many questions about it. Um, I guess the biggest question for most people is like, what what do I need to know? What are the things I should be aware of? What like Uh, you know, everything from uh, just generally speaking, understanding the investments, um, what types of loan to value, is this something that, uh, you know, that where maybe the question is, where would they find this information out and what should an investor, especially someone who's jumping in this space the first time be looking for?
1: Yeah, that's really important because there's a lot of um, different strategies within the industry. So where to find the information, firstly, On the company's website, generally they will have an investor's page or you can request an investor package and that will give you all the various fund metrics that I can jump into. Secondly, you should request what's called the offering memorandum, which is a publicly filed document where it discloses the, the risks of the investment, the strategy, you can see the organization's financial statements and that will give you a good sense of the company itself. Metrics you should look for. That's really important for us. uh, We build a comp set that uh, we often share with our investors to give them an idea of what to look for in the industry. So firstly, what type of mortgages is the company lending? There's first position mortgages, there's second position mortgages, third, fourth, um, huge range. For us, we focus on first position mortgages, meaning that we have first claim to the asset in a foreclosure scenario. And that means we're at the top of the credit stack. So should anything go awry with the loan, the person stops paying, we have claim to that asset. If it's a second mortgage, that means that there's another lender in front of you who needs to get paid out first before you would get your capital back. So that's a really important thing to look at. The second piece is what is the underlying property? For us, we will only lend on pure play residential properties in urban and suburban areas. Every home needs to be livable as it is today. So we don't do any construction, we don't do commercial, we don't do rural. And that's just because we like to lend on what we would consider to be a marketable liquid property. As a debt lender, we're always looking at the downside. So if we do need to foreclose, How do we make sure that we can get our capital back and in order to do that you in a foreclosure scenario you would need to sell the property it can be really difficult to sell a property in a rural area a property that isn't yet constructed Um, the other pieces really unique properties jumbo loans those more expensive properties can be really challenging to value and also difficult to sell in a foreclosure situation, especially if there's been some economic event where people might not want to buy a a $5 million home or something like that. So that's another piece that's really important to look at. Um, Where the company is investing is important. Many funds you'll see that they're geographically concentrated. Um, That's super common in our industry. And for us, we like to lend across Canada in the various real estate markets just because they all have different dynamics. So as Taylor mentioned, you know, in Vancouver and Toronto and Montreal, those are really the three cities who uh, have had really hot markets and there's a lot of news flow around them about whether there's going to be a price correction. That's why we want to be in multiple markets so that if there is a, a price correction in Vancouver, we don't have 100% of our portfolio in that market. We can sort of diversify our risk. And um, I think a, a good word to, or a good motto to live by for any investment is diversification. You, you want to have um, many small investments to help manage the risk.
0: In all honesty, Lisa, it sounds like you've had this conversation before. It was well uh, thought out and well presented. And I was just thinking while you were talking about that, that last three to five minute segment, we're going to cut that out and we're going to deliver that to everyone who ever asks what to look for in a private loan. So thank you
3: for that first and foremost.
1: Yeah, no worries.
3: So just on that note, I think there's one other piece that's probably very important. I know you guys are very, very diligent on this, which is loan to value. Obviously, being an equity-based lender, right? If, if you're offering 80% financing on all of your loans in Vancouver, meaning there's only 20% equity and there is a price correction of, say, 25%, which is probably far-fetched. But if that ever came to it, you guys would then be in a position of potential loss. right? Um, and I know just from working with you guys for years that you're always very diligent on having a certain level of equity for the most part uh, in the properties that you're willing to finance.
2: Yeah, that's true. And, and it's even tighter than what you describe, at least from our perspective, because if you're lending to 80% and you do have to foreclose on a borrower, you have legal costs associated with that. So suddenly you're at maybe 85% or 90% and that cushion gets even smaller. We even think of, and, and you guys might know this, we think appraisals have an inherent bias to them. So we're even cagey on that. So maybe your 80% appraised value is actually 85 um, based on the market. And and it it means no disrespect to appraisers. We work with wonderful appraisers, but it's just more about checking that risk. So we kind of work backwards and we go, how do we we lend in a way that we think we're not going to lose money? Does it mean it won't happen? but how much cushion out there do we wanna have? And so we tend to love any deal that's in the sub 65% LTV range, because that gives us a nice buffer if there's a housing correction, if the appraisal is a bit off, if there's legal costs, we're still gonna come out whole. And that's, that's a really important principle for us. And that's why we have a strategy where we wanna be a really competitive lender rate-wise in that bracket, because we love those loans and we don't like the risk as much as we get further outside of it.
3: So while we're talking worst case scenario, foreclosure, um, if you guys are comfortable talking about this, what does your history look like in regards to default? Do you guys see many foreclosures? Do you have to go through legal proceedings very often?
2: So actually really happy to talk about it because it comes up. And I think one of the stigmas associated with this space is that you get a bunch of loan sharks out there who are just licking their lips, trying to take a house and sell it and make a bunch of money. And that's not our game and it never has been. So really happy to say we've actually never finished a foreclosure process. So we've never taken possession of someone's home. So I mentioned earlier that we've done about 700, or sorry, over a thousand deals. We've got about 700 in the portfolio today. Our what we call serious delinquency rate. So that's people who have missed three or more payments is sitting at just over 1% in the portfolio. So we've got really, really high payment compliance. We have started foreclosures. Uh, We've started them probably 30 or 40 times. Lisa would know the number better than I would, but we have yet to take it right to the end. So typically what will happen when you start a foreclosure, it depends on the type of borrower. We always try to work with our borrowers. If we can tell they're trying to make payments and they need some adjustments, particularly during COVID, we would split people's payments for them, move their payment dates around. Wouldn't charge for any of that. We worked with our borrowers. But you do get some borrowers who just stonewall you. And so when you foreclose on them, you just file the legal papers and they appear in front of their noses. What we found is that that's a pretty good way to get them to jump into action and, and bring us current on the loan. So we're- Very impressive. Yeah. That, that's our space. And that's partly because we're also lending to people with a lot of equity in their homes. They don't want to lose their homes. They want to make their payments and, and stay in them. Absolutely.
0: That just stood out to me, that comment that you just made. And unless I heard that incorrectly, you've started foreclosure proceedings, but you've never yet completed a foreclosure. Did I hear that correctly? That's correct. That's So that right there, we've got to pin that. That's uh, pretty incredible. So kudos to everyone involved for that being the yeah. case. That's fantastic. Um, I, I, my last thought on this would just be in regards to, uh, I, I just want to like talk where we started off, which is just kind of where the market's going here for private lending. We talked a little bit about the history, uh, you know, maybe 2018, having a big impact on your market and the, and the quality of the borrower that you were seeing and the opportunities that you were seeing in the market last year. Well, we don't need to talk too much about it, but it happened. And now we're in an interesting market where where things are changing, but you have big predictions for even the private space, which is interesting to hear. So Taylor, what are we gonna see in 2021?
2: I think we're gonna see a few things. So one, I think we're gonna see a very robust real estate market. We don't make a call on on Mm -hmm. the absolute price appreciation or depreciation, but just in terms of activity, we were breaking records across the country all of the last half of last year so sort of July through to December it's you know new record after new record for sales of houses across the country people are buying real estate and that's really driven by covid talk to almost any economist that i've heard speak that's what they're saying it's just people realize they're going to be spending more time at home and they want to move out from being a renter to an owner Or, you know, if they're an owner of a condo, they want a townhouse or a detached house. So that's the other trend, is people are really fleeing to space, I think is the way to think of it. So you're seeing really active suburban markets, and we like them, particularly in Ontario. There's lots of large, sort of medium, I'll call them large, medium-sized cities. And I'm thinking places like London uh, is a great city we like to lend in. Even Ottawa is a great market, Kitchener-Waterloo. So... A lot of people are looking beyond just living in downtown Toronto, downtown Vancouver, downtown Montreal, moving out. So I I think we're going to see a lot of activity. For the year, that activity probably will be higher than last year. Uh, We're already off to a decent start, but given that we have some shutdowns in Ontario and Quebec, we've got curfews, we're just hearing that activity has slowed down a little bit. And if we're to learn anything from last year, it's that when you put a lid on this type of activity, at some point that pent up demand is is gonna come out. So we're thinking we're gonna see that. Again, the nice thing about being a lender is we don't have to call a top here. We don't have to go, gee, we think prices are gonna go up 15% this year. So we're gonna get ahead of that and take more aggressive steps to lend at maybe 80% knowing that by the time the market appreciates the risk has gone down So we're just saying, look, we'll lend at today's values at 65, in some cases 70%, keep it there. But we're expecting a really robust market. In the private lending space in particular, I think we're going to see a big year. Even for our fund, we're seeing a lot of institutional interest, a lot of big investors coming in with with large checks saying, I like the type of return you're providing me. If I'm just putting my money in in a bank deposit, I'm not earning much, but you guys are generating a great return for the type of risk you're taking. Mm. So that we think is going to lead to more competition in our space, because it's not just us that is seeing the, the flow of funds into our fund, our competitors are as well. That means they've got to get the money out, which means there's going to be more competition for deals, which will probably have an effect on rates.
3: Interesting. Very interesting. I'm uh, I'm kind of curious to see and I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts. I, th- I think it was two years ago when we were in a bit of a, a, a wild market um, and there was a lot of l- private lenders that were actually running out of money. Like People were literally running out of money. Private lenders had to shut off the taps. Um, so have you guys, first of all, did that happen to you guys and have you taken any steps to prepare?
2: So it hasn't happened to us, fortunately. It's It's tricky in private lending because we're not a bank. And banks don't run out of money because they can say, okay, dear bank customers, please invest in us. And by the way, if you open a savings account, we'll give you 2% on it or something. And so they just accept all these deposits, which they can then lend out uh, to people in the form of mortgages. There's also insurance programs in Canada that Make it or securitization programs as well to make it easy to sort of originate a mortgage, sell it. So the banks have an easier time. We've tried to build a system internally that so far has worked really well for cash management. And we have a very, very large line of credit with five banks, as Lisa had mentioned. So we can draw on that and provide that liquidity that we need to fund mortgages. So we basically manage our cash in a way that we forecast into the future what we think we're going to originate, make sure that we have the investor capital to support that, make sure the bank capital is available for it, and then go out and make commitments on mortgages. So we go and market to people. And if we're feeling like we're really flush with cash, we will offer things like rate sales just to make sure we can get that money out the door.
3: Method to the madness. No doubt. No doubt. Well, hey, listen, guys, we uh, we
0: may want to have you come back on again in the future. So we got to keep some of that intelligence uh, and and all that knowledge uh, in the tank here. So people will keep wanting to come back and, and listen to Taylor and Lisa talk. You guys have brought so much value uh, today and so much good information. Uh, so uh, many good examples. And I'm just really excited for people to listen to this. So uh, where and how and why should people be reaching out to you guys? Maybe Lisa or Taylor, you could let us know.
1: Lisa? Sure. Um, so where? Uh, on our website, you can get our contact information. Um, you can contact us if you're looking for a mortgage or an investment. Uh, we'd be happy to help you. If you are looking for a mortgage, we would be directing you back to a mortgage broker because we don't work directly with borrowers. Um, but for investment, you can chat to me directly. And um, yeah, we'd would, would love to hear from you from
0: all of you. Fantastic. Really appreciate you guys. And of course, when you said, we'll direct you back to mortgage brokers, you said you're going to send them back to thrive. Uh, So we're excited. We'll throw that. We'll just throw that in there at the end, but (laughs) awesome. Really excited and thankful for you guys to come on today. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Taylor so much. And I hope you all enjoyed the show.